Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static, and this is John Vecchione, uh, and uh, joined by Mark Chenoweth, as always. And I have uh, today an interesting case that is really revolving around stare decisis and uh, some of the concerns the courts now have about uh, the way they're perceived by the public. And the case is Vega v. Tocqueville. Um, and it's kind of interesting if you've ever watched any post-1960s police procedural. Uh, you know that Joe Friday and, and everybody else, when they arrest a suspect, say you have the right to remain silent. Um, if, you, if you don't um, remain silent, anything you say, say can and will be used against you and you have the right to attorney. And if you don't... Um, and if you don't uh, have money for an attorney, one will be provided to you, right? We've seen that a bazillion times. I was going to say, oh, it's wait. almost like you've watched a police procedural on TV at some point in the last <laughs> 50 years. And uh, and I've actually been watching British procedurals, and apparently this rule was in, in Britain long beforehand. They say they, they, they say it will be, written down, it will be t- written down in evidence and produced against you. But still, same thing. Um, in any event, the, but we all know that, but that was not anything that was done, certainly in the States, uh, until the 1960s and the case of uh, Miranda. And that, that's why they're called the Miranda warnings. And this was part of the, uh, you know, the Warren Court's uh, expansion of the constitutional of constitution um, into uh, police procedures in the States. And uh, it was highly criticized at the time and has been criticized for years. Well, in um, fact, John, there was a there was a statute passed by Congress to undo it. And the correct. Supreme Court just the courts just ignored it for a long time. Finally, it made it up to the Supreme Court in the early 2000s. And the court said, eh, it's been such Miranda has been such a part of the fabric of 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 the law enforcement for so long that it that it's a sort of precedential. And they they didn't enforce the statute, which I thought was remarkable. They said more. It's. It's United States v. Dickerson. It's exactly 2000. And what? And it's by Chief Justice Rehnquist, right. the chief enemy of the Miranda warnings. But he had decided that stare decisis, what, what Congress had done, what the Miranda does is if you don't get your Miranda warnings, then your confession or anything you say can't be used against you in court. It's, it's an exclusionary rule. And... Um, and so it's been criticized on a thousand different reasons. It's 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 an ex, it, it basically keeps evidence out from the jury if you haven't been Mirandized. And the Constitution doesn't say anything about this, but the courts have in, imposed it. So Congress said, "Well, wait a minute. We kind of agree that you should uh, be given this warning." So they said uh, they they had basically proposed another remedy if if you weren't Mirandized, and and when. And it wouldn't be exclusionary. I've forgotten what the remedy was, but there was a remedy provided in this law. 
And the United States v. Dickerson said, nope, no, that's not enough. And it was seven to two by Rehnquist. The fact that Rehnquist was the chief justice and the main enemy of Miranda on the bench since the 1970s, um, I think really put it away for whether or not Miranda warnings stay. But so what what's happened in this case? What's so what what's what's there to be decided? Everything's decided, right? It's uh, settled laws, they say, when they want you to approve some ruling when you're being uh, grilled by the Senate in your uh, in, in your confirmation hearings. So Vega v. Teco is this. A, a, a fella was in, in um, a hospital and uh, he was accused of sexually assaulting a patient. And when the police officer got there, he didn't give this guy Miranda warnings and grilled him. And then he confessed or, or gave a statement that that w- w- was indicative of guilt. Um, it went before the jury. The jury acquitted him, found he didn't do it. So and the statement was allowed into evidence. So this guy didn't get the exclusionary rule and he still was found not guilty by the jury. So what does he get out of Miranda? As his lawyer said, you know, nothing. He gets nothing. He's 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 not been Mirandized. His constitutional rights have been violated. So I'm going to bring this 19 section 1983 case which allows me to go against state officials for violations of constitutional rights and I'm going to sue him for money damages. And I want I want my I want my two dollars, whatever it is. I, this is this is very bad. So um, so the the um, court, the questioning of the court was really interesting. And it was interesting because they're really thinking about I mean, I think this is row based. I think it's all about and some of, some of what we do here at NCLA, we want to overturn certain rulings about the administrative state that we think that were wrong ab initio and have not, like Miranda, been on every procedural show for 40 years, creating a, uh, no, geez, I think 60 now, uh, creating, uh, you know, a cultural expectation. And just but, to be clear, when you say row-based, what you mean is based on the fact that folks who support the ruling in Roe v. Wade don't want to see that overturned. So they want to say that you can't overturn any old precedents in order to keep that one robust. Is that is that the that, just? I, I think that's right, and that, that they want to say that it's it's so relied upon that you can't undo it. You made you maybe it was a mistake, but we can't fix it now, which is kind of what Rehnquist said in Dickerson. But here's here so here's the deal. So Kagan's saying, well, wait a second, because here's here's what the argument is. The argument for the defense is that it's not really a constitutional right. All right. The Miranda warnings are a constitutional prophylactic and they are made up by the courts, but they aren't a right like a right to free speech. If you don't get them, you don't have a constitutional injury in the same manner. It's kind of a it, it, it's kind of a protection for you. But the entire extent of the protection is exclusion. And there's no remedy if you don't get that. That's section the 19, Section 1983 isn't plan B. <laughs> Apparently not. Oh. Good God. <laughs> so it is it is a uh, it. So so in any event, that the arguments Kagan is the one who thought that if they don't rule for uh, the plaintiff in this case, they're undermining the constitutional nature of Miranda and that it would be seen. She asked, you know, would it be seen by the public as us stepping back from Miranda? Um, and, and, and wouldn't that have an unsettling effect on people's understanding of the criminal justice system? And the court itself and its legitimacy and the way the court operates and the way the court sticks to what it says. 
So um, that's that's where Kagan is. She she uh, Kagan is the chief um, expostulator, I would say, of the um, of the progressive uh, uh, Brezhnev doctrine of uh, case stare decisive. What we have, we have, <laughs> and we're not. You, you don't get anything. You, you never can turn back a step um, on on any progressive uh, case. But um, that's that's where she's going at, and. Um, the, the, you know they answered it basically the 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 plan the plan of saying yeah you're right and and defense saying no your honor this is this is not even going to be um, a, a patch on anything because Miranda will be fully uh, out there in most cases because it'll be it'll be used the judges will exclude it um, so uh, Justice Barrett um, said you know Justice Kagan has some good points and. Uh, but Dickerson didn't use the word constitutional right. It's, it says that it's a constitutional rule or constitutionally required. So maybe there's a tension between Dickerson and whether it's really a constitutional right. And, and are we extending it? Would we be extending Miranda if we rule for you under 1983? So she's sort of looking the other way. Um, and uh, so, you know, the fact is, it, the Fifth Amendment gives you a right against self-incrimination. So the plaintiff said, listen, this we have a right against self-incrimination under the Fifth Amendment. That's a clear constitutional statement, uh, a, a clear con, uh, constitutional um, principle. There's, there's nothing loosey-goosey about it. And Miranda is just an explanation of that. It's just It just shows how that is protected. So when you don't do that, you really violated my Fifth Amendment non-incrimination. Um, and so Justice Kavanaugh goes in, he says, wait a minute, haven't we, isn't, isn't Miranda, isn't Miranda exactly all of your remedy? In other words, Miranda is a remedy. And if you don't get your remedy, there's no remedy for that. Um, particularly here where, you know, you were, it's because he was exonerated. If he was found guilty, we'd throw out the evidence and you'd go back without that evidence. That would be, that would be what would happen. But, but there's, um, that, that's your full remedy. And, and I thought he had a good answer. He said, no, it's not. We're injured. We, we had this statement used against us. I mean, and, and, and this is pretty true. If you're a prosecutor going after someone for, um, uh, for something like this and, and the, um, and the victim couldn't testify because she was not in, um, you know, wasn't uh, awake or something because it's a hospital setting. Um, well, that confession might be the whole reason the guy was prosecuted. It could be the whole reason he was prosecuted. He, he uh, and it would have been excluded and a prosecutor might not go forward with the case. So I thought the plaintiff had a good point here. And I, and I do think that Meaning just, that you were injured by having to defend yourself by, by going through the whole process. That would not the process have happened, was the punishment or something. Right. Like that. If the Miranda warnings had been properly done, you would not have gone through the whole thing. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I, I think it's a strong argument. I do think that there's going to be a split decision here. I think someone's going to say, um, probably Thomas, <laughs> that, uh, that um, uh, Miranda should go out the window. Uh, I think that's I think he was on the other side in Dickerson. Um but I do think that uh, they're gonna they're gonna say this is a Fifth Amendment violation, and I don't know the count, but I do think so because I do believe, um, I think whatever one thinks of Starry decisis, de de decisis, 
that uh, it is extremely strong in the Miranda area. Extremely strong. You you had huge pushback. That pushback didn't work. And it, people who know nothing about the law know that. So probably going to stay. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you. John, we filed an amicus brief at this new Civil Liberties Alliance uh, this past week in the Supreme Court of Ohio. Might be our first one in the Supreme Court of Ohio. I don't remember uh, one uh, before now there, at least uh, offhand. But in any event, uh, this is a case brought by our friends over at the uh, Pacific Legal Foundation. And the case is Twism Enterprises, that's T-W-I-S-M, Twism Enterprises, the State Board of Registration for Professional Engineers and Surveyors. And uh, a brand new attorney here at uh, NCLA, Casey Norman, was the one who uh, did a lot of the work uh, on this on this brief. And so kudos uh, to Casey. Glad to have her uh, on board. And, and John, what this uh, case involved is something that we have uh, we've been involved with several times around the country, and that is trying to take on this concept of Chevron deference at the state Supreme Court level as well. And the name of the case varies from state to state. At the federal level, we talk about Chevron deference, that is deference to an agency's interpretation of a statute. And a lot of states around the country reject that notion, as they well should, and more and more are starting to reject it. Wisconsin has rejected it recently. Arizona has. Florida has. Well, now here's Ohio's opportunity uh, to reject uh, that kind of deference. Although, as I was talking to the folks who were were working on this uh, 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 a little more closely than I was, I did edit the brief at the end, but those who were really digging into Ohio law here uh, told me, uh, John, that, uh, that what's interesting about deference in Ohio is that it seems to really be a cafeteria kind of deference, that <laughs> there, there doesn't seem to be a, you know, a really well-thought-out doctrine. It's just Hey, here's a here's a phrase from a federal case that we like. We'll just grab that phrase out and apply it in this case to uh, to accord deference uh, in the state. So it's uh, I don't know what you would call that sloppy deference or something like that. Uh, but uh, in any event, what uh, what happened here uh, is that Twism Enterprises, which is a small Cincinnati-based engineering firm, had applied for a certificate of authorization to provide professional engineering services to the public. And the State Board of Registration for Professional Engineers and Surveyors uh, denied that certificate of authorization on uh, February 28th of 2019. And according to the board, uh, TWISM's application was denied because TWISM, quote, did not designate one or more full-time partners, managers, members, officers, or directors as being responsible for an irresponsible charge of the professional engineering activities and decisions, uh, and those designated persons shall be registered in this state, which, uh, unquote, which is uh, what state law requires. And the board claimed that the Ohio Administrative Code precluded TWISM from designating 
their independent contractor who is a licensed professional engineer uh, in the state of Ohio and who himself has a certificate of authorization already, they claimed that the Ohio Administrative Code precluded TWISM from designating that person to serve as the firm's uh, designated uh, manager. Well, TWISM sued over this and the Hamilton County uh, Common Pleas Court, Hamilton County is the county in which uh, Cincinnati uh, is uh, is found. And the Hamilton County Common Pleas Court ruled in favor of TWISM. And they said, look, the statute does not, quote, does not put forth any requirements regarding what kind of employment, uh, that is W-2 or 1099 employment, is mandated, nor does it, quote, state that a designated manager must devote all his or her time, unquote, to a single firm. So the trial court really saw it the same way uh, that, that TWISM did and would have, and not the way that the board did. On appeal, however, the Court of Appeals in Ohio, and this is something we often see at the appellate level, concluded that, quote, both parties' definitions of full-time manager are reasonable, unquote. So it decided that it must defer to the board's reasonable interpretation. Well, this is, I mean, this is a, a quintessential Chevron-style uh, deference. But uh, NCLA's amicus brief argues that granting deference to the agency's interpretation here violates both the Ohio State Constitution and the federal constitution for at least two reasons. First, and if you've listened to this program, you've heard these arguments before, but they're worth reiterating. Agency deference requires judges to abandon their duty of independent judgment in violation of Article 4 of the Ohio Constitution uh, in, this, in this instance. And, you know, that's true at the federal level as well. But a lot of the states, John, are even more, uh, the language in the state constitutions many times is even more specific about this separation of powers uh, type issue than it, than it is at the federal level. And some of this language about the independence of the judiciary is even, even stronger sometimes in these state constitutions. So you know, we felt like there's a state constitutional reason why this duty of independent judgment is violated uh, by whenever a, a judge, a state judge in this case at the Court of Appeals would defer to a state agency. The second argument is that agency deference violates the due process clause of the Ohio Constitution and the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, that is the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, by commanding judicial bias in favor of a government litigant. And this is something that we've been beating the drum about over and over again. And I think it's really, and, and our founder, Philip Hamburger, is famous for inventing this argument and popularizing this argument. The, the U.S. Supreme Court has never taken this argument on. Justice Kagan studiously avoided uh, this argument, even though we had raised it in the Kaiser case. We had raised it in an amicus brief in the Kaiser case. And I think that the reason why people who support Chevron are not uh, willing to tear down this argument is because they know it's right. So if you're going to concede that uh, that this is right, then you can't continue to have Chevron deference. So if you want to continue to have it, then you have to find a way of, of ignoring this argument. The states like Mississippi and Wisconsin that have looked at this argument, they have decided, you know what, you're right. When a judge defers to one of the two litigants before them, the judge says, you know what, you both have good arguments, but because you, government, are the government, I'm going to defer to your argument. Well, that not only does that rob the other party, in this case, TWISM Enterprises, 
not only does it rob them of uh, of an independent judiciary, but it robs them of a fair trial. There's there's no way for them to win because the, the judge is saying, even though your argument is just as good as the government's argument, I'm not going to pick between them. I'm not going to use my independent judgment to to settle the controversy. Instead, I'm just going to defer to the government's uh, opinion here. And you, rec- you recognize when that happens, it's no longer the judicial branch that's making the decision. It's no longer the judicial branch that's interpreting the statute. It's the executive branch that's interpreting the statute. And the judicial branch is saying, yeah, I'm just going to go along with what the executive branch did. Well, that is not the system that we have in place. That is not the system that we have set up for independent for independent judgment. That's not the system we've set up for fair trials in this country. And that's why these sorts of these various kinds of judicial deference to administrative agencies are problematic constitutionally, and they need to go. And fortunately, this uh, this case is well situated at the Ohio Supreme Court uh, in order to uh, bring that about. And I want to I want to give kudos to uh, to our colleagues John uh, Casey Norman and and Kara Rollins because they found a, a nice little uh, uh, quote. Well, uh, maybe quote isn't the, the best way to put it, but they they found a, a an article, a, a blog post, I guess it was, by one of the justices of the Ohio Supreme Court from I believe from before he was on the Ohio uh, Supreme Court. But Justice uh, R. Patrick DeWine had written back in October of 2020 uh, on the Yale Journal on Regulation Notice and Comment blog, uh, a piece that he called A Few Thoughts on Administrative Deference in Ohio. And he noted that, uh, quote, this court's deference doctrine is not really a doctrine at all. It is more like Hogwarts room of requirement, where a judge or practitioner truly in need can always find some bit of law equipped for the seeker's purpose. End quote. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Read uh, another book. No, that was a good use. That was a good use of uh, of of the uh, of, of Harry Potter. Yeah. So uh, so you know, I, I doubt he's changed his mind now that he's uh, that he's on the bench and uh, he's not. Uh, I don't think he's going to be uh, recusing himself uh, from this matter. So hopefully, that will uh, uh, his opinion on that won't have changed and. And, you know, talking about what you were just talking about, stare decisis, uh, John, that, that comes in here, uh, too, that the, the courts are sometimes loath to call out these constitutional problems with agency deference because of stare decisis. They say, oh, you know, we've been deferring to the agencies for so long. Why would we stop now? Right? I mean, that's the that's the essence of it, as you were sort of just explaining about about Miranda. Uh, but uh, as we have. Uh, uh, as we argued, as NCLA argued in this amicus brief, the state Supreme Court is the place where errors of law have to be fixed. There's no there's no other way to do it, especially when there's a problem of constitutional dimension here. Uh, the, the courts are the ones that created the problem. The courts have the right uh, to fix it. And as the Ohio Supreme Court has said in another context, the Supreme Court not only has the right, but is entrusted with the duty to examine its former decisions, and when reconciliation is impossible, to discard its former errors, unquote. And there's a test in, o- in Ohio for uh, when you uh, don't rely on, on stare decisis. So if the decision was wrongly decided uh, at the time or changes in circumstances no longer justify continued adherence to the decision, that's one factor. 
A second factor is the decision defies practical workability. A third factor is abandoning the, abandoning the precedent would not create an undue hardship for those who have relied upon it. And I don't think we usually talk about creating an undue hardship for uh, administrative agencies. So that's not who we would be worried about uh, here. It's completely workable to have judges deciding the law rather than agencies uh, deciding the law. And that's what we need to, that's what we need to get back to. And I think that the, uh, uh, this case sets up very nicely for the Iowa Supreme Court. I think, John, as uh, we can, we can pay attention to this uh, going forward, I think that this will be the latest in a, what, I, what I said is a line of recent decisions rejecting Chevron at the state level. And hopefully that will inspire the federal courts, ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court, to do the same. We'll be right back with more. Thanks for listening to Administrative Static.